This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I shall now touch upon another subject as unpleasant as the one I have just quitted. What am I to do for a secretary of state? I ask Franklin with solicitude and shall receive kindly any sentiments you may express on the occasion, what with the non-acceptances of some, the known dereliction of those who are most fit, the exceptionable drawbacks from others, and a wish, if it were practicable, to make a geographic distribution of the great offices of the administration, I find the selection of proper characters an arduous duty. By late October 1795, Washington was exasperated by his search for new cabinet members and in desperation wrote to his trusted advisor, Alexander Hamilton, for any advice that he could provide on the matter. This was one Gordian knot, however, that even the crafty Hamilton couldn't unravel. And Washington would end up by January 1796 with a cabinet that could best be described as the not-so-dream team. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As we discussed last time, President Washington in mid-1795 was faced with a cabinet shakeup when it was found that Secretary of State Edmund Randolph had been at the very least indiscreet with, and at the very worst, actively colluding with, the French minister to the U.S. Then, a few days after Randolph's resignation, Attorney General William Bradford died. With two out of the four cabinet posts to fill, Washington began the process early. He first asked William Patterson of New Jersey, who was then serving as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, to take up the post at the State Department. Prior to joining the court in 1793, Patterson had served in state legislative offices before being chosen as the first Attorney General of the State of New Jersey. He later served in the Constitutional Convention, the U.S. Senate, and as Governor of New Jersey. While not possessing any diplomatic experience, Washington apparently felt him to be a good choice for the position. However, though I haven't been able to find exactly when the offer was made, Washington reported to Hamilton later that his first choice had declined appointment. Washington then proceeded on with a letter to Thomas Johnson four days after accepting Randolph's resignation, asking Johnson to become the new Secretary of State. Johnson, a former Supreme Court Justice from Maryland, had a lengthy career in public affairs going back to his opposition to the Stamp Act in 1765. As a former governor of Maryland and former delegate to the Continental Congress, he would bring a good deal of experience to the position. However, it was not to be. Johnson would write to Washington on August 29th declining the position, asserting that, quote, I do not think I could do credit to the office of secretary. I cannot persuade myself that I possess the necessary qualifications for it, and I am sure I am too old to expect improvement. No matter, Washington had a backup plan. In case Johnson refused the position, he had also written a letter to our old friend Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who we last encountered back in episode 1.25, when Pinckney had been offered the position of Secretary of War. Washington included the letter to Pinckney in his letter to Johnson and asked Johnson to put it in the post to Pinckney if he refused the position. Thus, Johnson put the letter in the mail to choice number three. Even though he wasn't first on Washington's list, surely Pinckney wouldn't decline the offer to serve as Secretary of State. As Washington stressed to Pinckney, quote, 
It is the duty of its old and uniform friends to assist in piloting the vessel in which we are all embarked between the rocks, for more pains never were taken, I believe, than to throw it upon one or the other and to embroil us in the disputes of Europe. An office of such dignity and high importance ought not to be without a head at such a crisis as this, a moment if it could well be avoided. Washington included no more letters to alternate candidates. Pinckney surely wouldn't decline the offer, right? Wrong. Pinckney was still suffering from financial issues, and thus, quote, it is not in my power to accept the elevated station in which you have so obligingly offered to place me. Though his declination of the post was, quote, with regret for stormy clouds or hanging the political horizon, so far from preventing me from coming forward in public office, would rather induce me to accept one. Washington was now 0 for 3 in terms of takers for the State Department, and at this point, it was difficult for Washington to determine who should be asked next, since Washington, shortly after sending the letter to Johnson in August, had hightailed it out of Philadelphia bound for Mount Vernon. He departed on September 8th and would be gone for a month and a half. Thus, he was delayed in seeking advice from his remaining cabinet or any other prominent national leaders. The search for a new Secretary of State would thus be delayed. During that time, Washington had some personal issues with which to deal as the son of one of his closest revolutionary comrades came back into his life. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. In late August 1795, former Secretary of War Henry Knox made a business trip from his home in Thomaston to Boston, Massachusetts. While he was there, he was greeted by a young Frenchman named George Washington Louis Gilbert de Lafayette. That's right, the Marquis de Lafayette's son. It has been a while since we last encountered Lafayette, episode 1.15 by my count, when he fell into Austrian custody in 1792. So let's do a quick catch-up. After Lafayette's imprisonment, then-U.S. Minister to France, Gouverneur Morris, had offered 100,000 livres of his own funds to Lafayette's wife, Adrienne, and Washington had 2,300 guilders of his own funds deposited into an account in Amsterdam for her use. When Lafayette was transferred to Prussian custody, Washington would make a personal appeal in January 1794 to Friedrich Wilhelm II, King of Prussia, asking for Lafayette to be released on parole. It appears that there was no response. Lafayette was transferred then to Austrian custody once more, quote, who shut him up in a filthy fly-infested cell in Olmutz, where he lay in chains and ragged clothing. Meanwhile, Governor Morris, prior to his departure from his post in Paris, intervened on behalf of Adrienne Lafayette to spare her from the guillotine during the Reign of Terror, but the U.S. minister was not able to save Adrienne's sister, mother, or grandmother from being beheaded. It seemed that there was little that his American friends could do to relieve the Marquis' troubles except offer thoughts and prayers. Enter Georges Washington Lafayette. He had traveled to the United States along with his tutor, Félix Fastel, to ask his godfather, the president of the nation, to intervene to restore his father to freedom. It was thus that Knox found the young Lafayette in Boston 
and Knox wrote to Washington on September 2nd for the first time since he had left the administration nine months prior, informing him of the arrival of his godson and namesake. For his safety, the young Lafayette was traveling under the family name of Mottier, and Knox had to provide Washington with instructions on how to get a letter to him discreetly. Knox informed the president that, quote, your namesake is a lovely young man of excellent morals and conduct. However, as we've discussed recently, U.S.-French relations were not on their best footing given the Jay Treaty, and Washington was concerned about how the French will react to Washington being in contact and, heaven forbid, meeting with the son of a man who was considered an enemy to the French Republican government, or for Washington to take the young Lafayette into his household. Knox was not the only one writing to Washington, though. The young Lafayette had already written to him a couple of days prior, informing him of his arrival in the U.S. and asking him, quote, Voudrez-vous bien permettre aux filles en fortune du nom que vous avez honoré de quelque amitié et qui de bonheur a pris de lui à vous regarder comme son père, de venir vous offrir l'expression de sa reconnaissance? Sorry, I'm trying to practice my français for a planned trip to France. The translation, quote, Will you allow the unfortunate son of a man whom you have honored with some friendship and who has learned from him to look upon you as his father, to come and offer you the expression of his gratitude? The tutor, Félix Frestel, wrote to Washington as well on the same day, asking Washington how he should proceed with the young man and informing him that he had opted to delay thus far due to the excessive heat in Boston and his concerns about a change of situation on the young man's health. Plans had to be made, however. With all these letters in hand, Washington struggled to figure out how he could fulfill his personal obligations to his friend and his namesake, while at the same time living up to his oath of office and his responsibilities as president to work in the best interests of the nation. Before long, a plan started to form. Washington wrote a private and confidential letter to Senator George Cabot, Federalist from Massachusetts, on the 7th, asserting that, quote, to express all the sensibility which has been excited in my breast by the receipt of young Fayette's letter, from the recollection of his father's merits, services, and sufferings, from my friendship for him, and from my wishes to become a friend and father to his son, are unnecessary. Due to circumstances, however, he could not be so publicly. Using Cabot as a proxy, though, he sent a message to his namesake. Washington urged him to enroll in Harvard for the time being, with Washington paying his expenses, discreetly through Cabot, of course, and to wait there while Washington got back to Philadelphia to make some inquiries to see what might be done to bring him there. Worried that the young man would feel put off, he urged Cabot to assure George Washington Lafayette, quote, My friendship for his father, so far from being diminished, has increased in the ratio of his misfortunes and my inclination to serve the son will be evidenced by my conduct. Reasons which will readily occur to you, and which can easily be explained to him, will account for my not acknowledging the receipt of his or Mr. Frestel's letter. As he sent it on, one can imagine Washington wondering whether this plan would settle the matter. He would have to wait a bit to find out. Cabot wrote back to Washington on the 16th, informing him that he had delivered the president's message to Lafayette and Frestel, but that Washington's plan might not work. As Cabot updated Washington, quote, they were in a state of anxiety respecting a new place of residence where they might live unnoticed. Considerations of the kind which you have mentioned and some others render this eligible for the present, but it is found impracticable here. 
Already, Mr. Mortier is known to too many persons. In a public festival announced by the French consul for Monday next, at which all those citizens in this vicinity are expected to attend, occasions serious embarrassment. To which is added that some circumstances of delicacy relative to the family in which they are placed make an immediate removal proper. Cabot made plans for them to depart to New York, quote, where they expect to be accommodated in a country house, which send the possession of their friend, Mr. La Calombe, and with whom they may remain in retirement until you shall direct otherwise. Hamilton would pick up the story of Lafayette and Frestel on October 16th, when he informed Washington in a letter that they had arrived a fortnight prior and, quote, are gone to a house between Hackensack and Ramapo in the Jerseys, to which may be conveyed any letter you may confide to me for them. They are incognito. Washington would find this letter waiting for him upon his return to Philadelphia on the 20th, along with news of other developments. Edmund Randolph, though forced out of the State Department, was not willing to let his reputation be tarnished by the accusations that had been leveled against him. On the surface, it looked as if it may be a lengthy process, as it depended on getting access to additional dispatches that French minister to the U.S. Jean-Antoine Joseph Fauché had sent to his government that were referenced in the captured dispatches. But the problem with that was that Fauché had been recalled due to yet another change in the French Republican government. More on that in a few minutes. Fauché was to have set sail from New York City on August 10th, so contacting him to provide information was out of the question. Or was it? On August 21st, Randolph learned that Fauché's ship had not sailed to Europe as planned, having been held up in Newport, Rhode Island, due to reports of a British cruiser patrolling the waters off New England. And thus, Randolph hightailed it up the coast. He stopped off for a couple of days in New York, in which he encountered Senator Rufus King, who, as Randolph quipped in a letter to his wife Betsy, acted, quote, as if he had scarcely heard of my resignation. As noted by Randolph biographer John J. Reardon, quote, Embittered by the whole experience, Randolph seemed prepared to believe the worst of anyone with a different political persuasion from his own. With this chip on his shoulder, he kept on, finally arriving in Newport on August 31st, where he immediately made his way to Fauché's lodgings. He explained the situation to Fauché and asked him to provide, quote, a certificate according to his memory of their interactions. Fauché readily agreed and told Randolph to return the next day. At the hour they had agreed upon, Randolph arrived at Fauché's door, but was told by a servant that Fauché would need until noon to provide him with the certificate. Already a ball of nerves, Randolph asked to speak with Fauché. The Frenchman came out to speak with him and assured him that the certificate was forthcoming. At this point, Randolph added to his request and asked, quote, if Fauché would be willing to submit to questioning conducted by a member of the U.S. House of Representatives and a federal judge. Fauché agreed, and Randolph left. Before the noon hour arrived, though, Randolph learned that Fauché's ship was making ready to set sail. He rushed to Fauché's lodgings to find him gone. Randolph went into a panic. With the assistance of the federal marshal of the area, Randolph, quote, secured the swiftest sailing vessel in port to deliver a message to Fauché asking for the certificate. Once the boat set off, all he could do was wait. Minutes ticked away. Then, as described by Reardon, quote, finally, the boat that had carried Randolph's message reappeared in the harbor. And in a matter of minutes, Randolph heard the captain tell of having pursued the Medusa, Fauché's ship, for several miles without having been able to overtake her. Exhausted and dejected, Randolph returned to his lodgings. He was now completely defeated. 
for he knew that what he could not secure from Fauché in Newport, he would never secure from him in France. The next day, though, would bring a surprise. The pilot who guided the Medusa out of the Newport Harbor gave Randolph a letter that Fauché had asked him to deliver. Fauché had sent everything on to the new French minister to the U.S., citizen Pierre-Auguste Adet, and assured Randolph that Adet would provide him with, quote, a certified copy of my letter, with which, I hope, you will be satisfied. With this, Randolph left Rhode Island and rejoined his family in Germantown, Pennsylvania. After dealing with various items of personal and lingering public business in the transition out of the State Department, Randolph went back to Philadelphia on September 20th, where he picked up his personal mail from the State Department office. It was in this personal mail that he found two letters from Washington, one of which outlined how Washington had learned of Fauché's dispatches. The president also noted that he had not seen dispatch number six, only 10, which he sent on to Randolph for reference. Now, the dispatch that I shared with all of you in episode 1.22 was number six. Dispatch 10 is a more lengthy report of the Whiskey Rebellion, including information that Randolph had shared with Fauché, but which also contains Fauché's own observations and information gathered from other sources. Dispatch 6 is certainly the more damning, while Dispatch 3 details Randolph's confiding to Fauché his fears of internal divisions within the U.S. and asserting that the U.S. was closer to France than Britain, and that Jay's special mission was, quote, to demand a solemn reparation for the spoilations which our, i.e. American commerce, has experienced on the part of England, with Randolph sharing his instructions to Jay with Fauché. This confirmation of Washington's limited knowledge gives Randolph what he sees as an opening, and he starts asking questions of Washington in a reply letter about the timeline of events and whether Washington had even seen Dispatch 3 in order, in my opinion, to get him to thinking about what Dispatch 10 actually said and how much of the insinuations against him came from Pickering and Walcott and, indirectly, from British Minister Hammond using the two cabinet members as proxies rather than actual evidence. He also asked for a copy of Dispatches 3 and 6 in order to have those as reference for his defense. As rumors had begun circulating around Philadelphia about Randolph's abrupt departure from the State Department, Randolph had this letter to Washington printed in the Philadelphia Gazette as a public statement that he intended to defend himself against the accusations laid against him. Washington replied to Randolph while still at Mount Vernon on September 27th, clarifying a couple of points in the timeline and confirming that he had only seen Dispatch 10, not 3 or 6, and that neither of those was in his possession. The president then concluded the letter, asserting that, quote, No man would rejoice more than I should to find that the suspicions which have resulted from the intercepted letter were unequivocally and honorably removed. Thus, Randolph's research into his defense continued. He sent a letter questioning Walcott on various points and found that, as noted by Reardon, quote, Walcott seemingly knew little more than Washington about the background of the letter, i.e. Dispatch 10, and apparently had made no effort to check Fauché's references to earlier dispatches or even to learn if the British had access to these dispatches. Early October found Randolph back at the State Department requesting access to see Washington's letters to him during his final couple of months as secretary. As he examined them, he noticed a letter missing, a letter dated July 22nd. When he asked about it, he was told that the acting Secretary of State had removed it and that it was only available on special request. 
Randolph thus made a special request for it and, after waiting a few days, was informed that the letter, quote, does not appear to have any connection with the intercepted letter of Mr. Fauché and that his request was denied. I'm sure you're wondering what was so special about this letter. Luckily, we all now have access to it and can see why Randolph thought it so critical to his case. As we noted last episode, Washington abruptly did an about-face on August 12th and decided to sign the Jay Treaty immediately. The letter from July 22nd reflected Washington's ambivalence about signing the treaty, with the president writing, quote, My opinion respecting the treaty is the same now that it was, namely, not favorable to it, but that it is better to ratify it in the manner the Senate have advised, and with the reservation already mentioned, i.e. news of the new orders in council, than to suffer matters to remain as they are unsettled. What had changed in those couple of weeks? Namely, according to Randolph, Pickering had confronted Washington with a dispatch that he was able to spin into a larger conspiracy and intrigue than is evidenced by the actual text and convince Washington to throw off his previously trusted advisor and make a change of policy favorable to those like Pickering of a pro-British inclination. He went so far as to insinuate that Pickering and Walcott had, wittingly or unwittingly, been used as pawns by British Minister Hammond in a follow-up letter to Walcott, where he referred to, quote, Mr. Hammond's machinations. In Randolph's mind, he had cracked the case and now just needed to present his defense in order to restore his reputation. This defense, though, would burn his bridges with the most influential and preeminent man from his home state. Before we go any further, I'd like to step back a moment and just get an overall sense of what's happening here. As we've noted, the new cabinet was much more partisan than Washington's previous cabinet. Randolph had been the last with Democratic-Republican inclinations, and he had been driven out in a way that had embittered and radicalized him. Whereas before, Randolph had been a voice of moderation. Now, he was turning to a trope in his defense that we've seen previously. The easily influenced Washington. Both Jefferson and Hamilton, in times where they needed to defend themselves, when they had fallen into disfavor, had turned to this viewpoint. And now, it was Randolph's turn. Unlike the former two, however, Washington at this point was less inclined to forgive and forget, especially with Randolph striking a few impertinent tones with the president. First, when he wrote to Washington in early October about Pickering's refusal to give him access to the letter of July 22nd, And before Washington could respond, or indeed had even received the letter, Randolph had the letter published in the Philadelphia Gazette on October 10th. It was one thing to question the motives of a cabinet member in a private letter. It was another to call him out and challenge the president to do something about it in public. When Washington replied, he gave Randolph the right to publish any letter from him that he wished that would help in his defense, so long as he also had the current letter printed as well so that the public would know that Washington had not denied Randolph access to any government documents. Randolph replied to Washington with his thanks, but went on to proclaim himself to be, quote, the mediated victim of party spirit. The president would begin a reply, but ultimately would follow it away unsent. So far as we know, there was never another letter exchanged between the two again. While his friendship with Randolph was unraveling, Washington was still trying to discern what to do about his young French namesake. Hamilton advised him to trust his instincts and not be overwhelmed by his caution, 
asserting that he felt that showing kindness to the young Lafayette would, quote, not displease those in possession of the power of the country from which he comes, and in hours it will be singularly and generally grateful. I even venture to think it possible that the time is not very remote when the Marquis will again recover the confidence and esteem of his country, when perhaps the men in power may be glad to fortify themselves and their cause with his alliance. Washington, however, knew the situation in France to be a bit more precarious than that, and viewed the situation with more pessimism. Though the French Republic, during the course of 1795, had been able to secure peace treaties with Prussia and Spain, and had helped to establish a like-minded, i.e. completely subordinate, sister republic, the Batavian Republic, in the Netherlands, after driving out the Prince of Orange and Stadtholder of the Dutch Republic, on the domestic front, the Thermidorian government had proven unable to bring about tranquility within the French borders. The spring had brought more bread riots, and the uprising of Germinal in early April, with around 10,000 Parisians marching on the French National Convention to demand bread and the implementation of the Constitution that had been ratified back in 1793, but that neither the Jacobins nor the Thermidorians had put into practice. Meanwhile, counter-revolutionary French emigres, with the encouragement and behind-the-scenes support of the British government, landed 3,000 forces at Quibonon in southern Brittany at the end of June in an attempt to overthrow the revolutionary government and restore the French monarchy. Though the invasion was quickly thwarted, it was further proof of the precarious nature of the current French government. What was needed was a more stable, more conservative government structure that would set the nation on a surer footing. The Constitution of 1793 was immediately dismissed as being too radical, and instead a new constitutional convention was called in the summer of 1795, which produced a document that provided for a system, quote, of elaborate checks and balances. A bicameral legislature was established with a lower house, the Council of 500, which would initiate legislation, and an upper house, quote, the Council of Elders, with 250 members, married or widowed, over 40 that would only serve to approve or decline legislation from the lower house. The executive power, meanwhile, would be held by the Directory, a five-member council chosen by the Council of Elders from a list of candidates generated by the Council of 500. One of the five directors would retire from public service each year by lot, and thus the executive would forever be in flux with a new member cycling in each year. They would be completely independent of the legislature and would not serve in either the lower or upper house while in the directory. With almost 4 million voters not casting ballots, the Constitution of 1795 was approved in early September by a vote of 1,057,000 to 49,000. Thus, Washington was aware that he would likely be dealing with an unknown new French government in the near future. Despite his doubts, though, he declared in a private letter to Hamilton on October 29th that, quote, to be in the place of a father and friend to him, i.e. the young Lafayette, I am resolved under any circumstances, and authorized Hamilton to send the young Lafayette and Frestel incognito to Philadelphia, quote, if you should think some good would come from it. A few days went by, and he received a letter from Hamilton, but it made no reference to Lafayette. Thus, he wrote again, repeating that, quote, I am willing, as I said in my last, to receive him, the young Lafayette, under any circumstances or in any manner you may conceive best, and wish to know what that is. A few more days passed, 
and no word. On November 18th, he wrote to Hamilton, quote, to request that you would desire young Fayette and his tutor to proceed to this place without delay, having resolved, unless some powerful reasons can be suggested to the contrary, to take them at once into my family. The young gentleman must have experienced some unpleasant feelings already from being kept at a distance from me, and I feel as unpleasantly as he can do from the same cause. He was ready to be all in and to embrace his namesake. Upon receipt of this letter, Hamilton finally put pen to paper, but what he had to tell the president was not to bring him cheer. Hamilton apologized for the delay in speaking about the matter, but asserted that he had been feeling out various opinions on the situation and that what he had heard left him not as optimistic as he had once been. Quote, It seems to be feared that the factious might use it as a weapon to represent you as a favorer of the anti-revolutionist of France, and it is inferred that it would be inexpedient to furnish at this moment any alignment to their slanders. Hamilton recommended that Washington write to the young Lafayette himself to break the news and to assure him of, quote, your resolution to be to him a parent and friend, but explaining that at the moment he could not take him in personally, but would make arrangements through Hamilton for his well-being. Having made up his mind to bring the young man into the fold and having grown excited at seeing the offspring of his dear friend, Washington was understandably disappointed. However, he acceded to Hamilton's proposed plan since, quote, I am distrustful of my own judgment in deciding on this business, lest my feelings should carry me further than prudence, while I am a public character, will warrant. For the time being, his public office would separate him both from those who had been friends for many years and those whom he would like to bring into friendship. The president's house was growing ever lonelier, and the presidency was becoming a heavier yoke to bear than in previous years. As the old saying goes, it's always darkest before the dawn. So I hope you'll join me next time for an episode I'd like to call Under Pressure, Near and Far, where we'll press forward into the latter part of the term to see just how dark the days can get for the president and for those within his circle. Until then, special thanks to James Early for reading the intro quote for this episode. James, in addition to being a professor at San Jacinto College in Texas, is also the organizing force behind a Facebook group that I've mentioned on here a couple of times, the American History Fanatics. It is a great group for students of American history to gather, learn from one another, and engage in fun trivia contests and discussions. I just began hosting a regular trivia contest in the group called Gerrymandering. So if you'd like to join in the fun, search for American History Fanatics on Facebook. I'd also like to give special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. The turbulent days of the second Washington term come across crisp and clear thanks to his hard work. If you, like me, could use his assistance with your podcast or audio project, reach out to him via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, should you have any questions, comments, or original copies of the French Constitution of 1795 lying around, send them on my way to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also reach me via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source notes for this episode, including links to the whole back and forth between Hamilton and Washington, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U, B-R-R-Y dot com. 
While there, check out all the ways that you can subscribe to the podcast. This podcast is available through iTunes, Podchaser, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn. Or just copy and paste the RSS feed into your favorite podcast app. Until we meet again next time, take care, Miss Shizam. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.